Hi, listeners. I'm Irene Barton, Executive Director of the Cobb Collaborative, and I welcome you to Mind Your Mind Speaks. This is a podcast series that brings together subject matter experts, community leaders, and local stakeholders to help raise awareness, share resources, and inspire action through recorded conversations about the Cobb Collaborative's focus areas. Today, we are delighted to welcome Dr. Yolanda Graham to our program. Dr. Graham serves as the Senior Vice President and Chief Clinical Medical Officer for Devereaux Advanced Behavioral Health. She is board certified in general psychiatry, child and adolescent psychiatry, and is an expert in the areas of mental health, child advocacy, psychotropic medication management, behavioral management, and something that we'll be exploring a little more deeply today, childhood sexual exploitation and trauma. Dr. Graham joined Devereaux in 2011 as the medical director of Devereaux, Georgia, and in 2016 was promoted to her most recent position. She's widely recognized across the nation as a leading expert in the treatment of sexually exploited children, and she also developed and launched Devereaux's Commercially Sexually Exploited Children, also known as CSEC program in 2012. Prior to Devereux, Dr. Graham was the medical director at Youth Villages, Inner Harbor Campus in Douglasville. She's also served as a consultant for Strive LLC, where she helped to develop curriculum there dealing with sexually exploited children. And she has other very impressive credentials, including serving as a clinical psychiatrist for other organizations, including Positive Impact, Fulton County Metro Youth Detention Center, and the DeKalb County Community Service Board. Dr. Graham earned her bachelor's degree from Cornell University and a doctor of medicine from the State University of New York at Buffalo School of Medicine and Biomedical Sciences. She completed her residency and two fellowships at Emory University. She serves on a variety of boards, including the Georgia Psychiatric Physicians Association, where she's the president, the Georgia Center for Child Advocacy, Georgia's Drug Utilization Review Board, Shared Hope International, and Well Care's Behavioral Health Advisory Board. In addition to all of that, she's also the past president of the Georgia Council on Child and Adolescent Psychiatry. Wow, Dr. Graham, I don't know when you sleep, if you sleep, if you have any personal passions or pursuits that you like to explore in your downtime, but I really thank you for joining us on the program, and I'll invite you if there's anything that you'd like to add to that already very impressive and robust resume, please feel free to go ahead and share that with our listeners now. Well, thank you, Irene, for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be with you today and to talk about our topic. And I think you covered you cover very well my background and career. What I'll say is that, you know, many people ask, how did I get into this field? And when I was in medical school, um, I had no idea I would become a child psychiatrist. And I certainly had no idea that I would be specializing in sex trafficking and youth. And so I think you know, at, at times in life, um, when you're living on purpose, your purpose finds you. And so my journey, you know, into this specialty area has been one that is over 20 years long now. And I'm sure we'll get a chance to talk about that more you know, as we go along. But it's a pleasure again to be here today. 
Absolutely. Well, I'm glad your residency brought you south because I noticed you kind of started your uh, medical career as a student in a place where it's really cold and um, you had the opportunity to come south where it's a little bit warmer. And um, and we were lucky enough to keep you down here, I guess, where the winters are much shorter than they are in upstate New York. <laughs> they, they really are. I'm actually a Georgia peach. I was born in Albany, Georgia. Oh, and okay. So, <laughs> so I'm actually from South Georgia. And you're right. I did a long stint in upstate New York um, for my education and came back for my training and stayed in Atlanta for uh, about 25 years. So I definitely am a child of the South. Well, wonderful. Well, that's our good fortune. And I can tell you're from there because you put the accent on the correct syllable. That's exactly <laughs> that's very important. <laughs> well, thank you again uh, for joining us on the show, Dr. Graham. As I mentioned, when I was reading your biography, and certainly it's true, you are considered a subject matter expert on human sexual trafficking. So let's talk a little bit about that. Um, sadly, we hear a lot about this topic in Georgia, around the metro area, probably across Georgia as well, because sadly, Georgia and specifically the metro area seems to be a hub for this activity. Can you explain to our listeners why that is? What's the history behind that? Oh, sure. And I became involved in um, sex um, working with you who are victims of sex trafficking in Georgia probably 25 years ago now, when we first started to recognize that Georgia was a hub and specifically Atlanta, as you said. And when we look at what are the main factors that drive the sex trafficking business, they really are demand, supply, and impunity. And, mm -hmm. when, we, and when we talk about demand, you know, we know that sex trafficking is a demand-driven business um, and it's our children that are for sale. Um, according to Equity Now, sex trafficking is a $9.9 billion industry. Wow. I'll say that again, $9.9 billion in industry. And much of the sex trafficking of youth now is done online, where you see youth that are sold for up to $400 an hour, 10 to 15 times a day. And so you can see how those numbers quickly add up. And, you know, when we look at why Georgia, specifically Atlanta, um, is kind of always in that top 10 list of cities, you know, in the country, um, sex trafficking tends to flourish in border cities and states due to the ease of transporting or smuggling victims without being detected. And then cities that have a large international airport, host conventions, mm -hmm. or those cities that have a large entertainment and sporting industry. So Georgia is certainly not a border state, state, but Atlanta checks to ticket for each of those other risk factors. And so the fact that we have, you know, the world's largest international airport, we have a large sporting industry, entertainment in industry, we're a convention city, that really allows, I think, sex trafficking to flourish. It sets the background or mm -hmm. the stage for that to occur. And so what you see is that people are flying into the city and they're booking kids online as part wow. of their itinerary for their trip, you know, and it's sickening. That, oh but, my gosh, yeah. I mean, when I think about traveling with my um, husband, our children are young adults, so they're rarely with us. Like 
when I think about traveling to a city and, you know, checking out maybe the museums or other cultural things or, you know, what's the nice restaurants, I, it's so sickening and disheartening to think that people are not doing that, but they're booking entertainment in this area. They, they really are. And it is. And that and that really, like I said, that confluence of factors together and the fact that sex trafficking has moved to an online business, you mm -hmm. know, has also supported that, you know. And so, yes, those are the biggest factors. And, okay. you know, so and Georgia has done a lot to try to combat this. If, you, mm -hmm. if you're in Atlanta Airport, one of the things I listen for is the announcement you know, if you're a victim yes. of sex trafficking, please call and you look on the bathroom stalls and there are signs there. And we've done a lot of work training the hotel industry and the airline industry on looking for the red flags and the signs of sex trafficking, because that's really how we start to combat it, you know, to attack it in the places where we know is flourishing. Flourishing, absolutely. And knowledge is power. And so if we can equip those folks who are public facing in those roles with the the warning signs or what to look out for that can definitely definitely play a significant role in helping to reduce it or or stop it um you're, you're exactly right yeah and the other thing that i talked about you know the third factor that allows it to flourish is impunity and that has to do yes. with what are the laws on the books to mm -hmm. punish those men and i say men because it's primarily men who mm -hmm. buy sex from children or sell children for sex, you know, and, and, and that's something I think Georgia can be proud of. Um, there's a group called Polaris, which really focused a national agency focused on reducing sex and labor trafficking. And they also operate the national human trafficking hotline. They produce an annual report every year that focuses on looking at what are the legal provisions within a state as they relate to um, prosecution of those who are committing the crime and protection of the victims from being charged with crimes. And Georgia actually scored an A in 2023. Georgia was only one of only three states to score an A. And that means that a lot of work has been done in Georgia to change the laws and provide protections to victims. When I started working in this field over 20 years ago, Sex trafficking of, of kids was a misdemeanor with a $250 fine. Oh we've, come, we've come a long huh. way. And so I think also looking at impunity of men who are looking to purchase sex for children, know that in Georgia, you'll be charged with a felony with mandatory minimum um, compensation and um, jail time. You know, that helps people think twice. Do you really want to come into our state or into our city and do this? Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, I'm glad that Georgia is a leader in the prevention and prosecution of of this heinous crime. And you're right, we have come a long way. I did not realize the, you know, that it was barely a slap on the wrist, if you can call it that, 20, a, a couple of decades ago. So, well, Dr. Graham, let's learn a little bit more about your work with Devereaux's um, commercially sexually exploited children, the CSEC program. First of all, can you kind of explain what CSEC is? You're coming in after the tragedy and the trauma has happened, correct? 
but how it relates to human trafficking and what led you to launch the CSEC program there? Sure. So CSEC, as you said, Irene, stands for the Commercial Sexual Exploitation of Children. And that really is the clinical term we use to describe youth who have been victims to this heinous crime. But it's really synonymous with sex trafficking. And the federal term is actually domestic minor sex trafficking. Um, and that has to do with the Trafficking Victims Protections Act and getting um, you know, compensation or services from that. But really, CSEC, sex trafficking of kids, it really refers to any activity where a minor or youth under the age of 18 exchanges sexual activity for something of value. And that something could be food, housing, drugs, or even the promise of love. So it includes anything, I mean, from pornography to erotic dancing or massages to being sold at sex parties, being sold online or on the streets. And sex trafficking, of course, is one of the many forms of human trafficking, with labor trafficking being, trafficking being the next most common. So when I first you know, went into this field, I was working with the Department of Juvenile Justice in Fulton County on developing diversion programs for youth who were presenting um, with legal charges at very young ages. And then I started working with them on gender specific programming and, you know, talk about the right place at the right time. There's a group of women who donated a home to begin services for these victims. It was called Angela's House. And it was the first safe house in the southeastern region for victims of sex trafficking. And it was developed really to get these youth off the street, but it came, became evident pretty early that there was a need for clinical programming. And so I was brought in to help develop the clinical programming for Angela's House, which is how I connected with two wonderful women, Marianne Smoko and Melba Robinson, to collaborate on developing the STRIVE curriculum, which is a curriculum we developed specifically for youth who were victims of sex trafficking. And so I continued growing in that field. And when I left Youth Villages in a Harbor and came to Devro as the medical director, I knew this was a program that, you know, I had to replicate. And so really since that time, my job has been replicating that program at Devro. So we have programs in Georgia, we develop programs in Texas, Arizona, Florida, Massachusetts, and Pennsylvania. And then I consult with other people nationally on developing CSEC specific services for the youth that are in their care, because what we know now, we thought CSEC was an inner city problem. And mm -hmm. we know that kids are victims of sex trafficking everywhere in rural areas, in suburban areas. And that, you know, we often talk about girls, but we don't talk about the boys. And, you know, 50% of the victims of sex trafficking are boys. And oh, so, wow. what, yeah, what we learned at Devro is that it's important that we screen all youth for um, sex trafficking, just like we screen for other forms of trauma, right? Okay. When you come mm -hmm. in, we ask about a history of emotional abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse. Well, we have to ask specifically about a history of sex trafficking, because if we don't ask, that's how we're missing these kids. I realized that many years ago, I've probably been seeing these youth for many, many years, for decades, I just wasn't asking the question. Well, yeah. I mean, it's not what we think about when we think about childhood experiences, right? 
Right, right. But it's important to ask the questions. And, you know, as we look at, you know, what are the risk factors? And especially at Devro, you know, I look at what is our population? The main risk factors for sex trafficking are having a history of physical or sexual abuse, a history of runaway, identifying as LGBTQ+, or kids who are in the custody of child welfare and have a history of child welfare involvement. And that is many of the kids that we work with. And so that was one of the reasons I felt like it was really important that we provide culturally competent care at Devro, but we also share those best practices with others. So we screen all kids who walk through our door. And if they are positive on their screener, we have a full assessment that we do called the CSEIT. It was developed by West Coast Children's out in California. And then we offer a prevention curriculum called I Empathize. For all of our kids who are in our educational programs, they get this curriculum that warns them about the dangers of sex trafficking. Because we not only want to treat it, we want to prevent it. And we know that if the average age that kids are victims of sex trafficking is 15, we have to start the education very early. That means starting the education in middle school or elementary. Mm -hmm. And then we, of course, have a full curriculum called Ending the Game, where it's a survivor-developed and survivor-led curriculum, which is really big in this field, using people with lived experience to help um, develop the treatment component. And um, that has just been a wonderful addition, you know, to to our treatment at Apps. Oh, I can certainly appreciate that. So, Dr. Graham, when you talked about your um, screening process, you mentioned other forms of abuse and maltreatment, physical, emotional. And for those of us who kind of work in this space, um, those can fall under a big umbrella known as trauma and a more narrower umbrella of adverse childhood experiences, something that we focus a lot on at the collaborative. But we also say that trauma is not your destiny because we want, I mean, you talked about, you know, folks who leave the industry, thank goodness, the youth, and we want to make sure that the the children and the youth realize that this is not their destiny, that this does not define them. What are the outcomes for the youth who have gone through your program? And feel free to talk about not only in Georgia, but in the other places that Devereaux, that you have brought this program in Devereaux. Yes, thanks, Irene. I'm, I'm really glad you mentioned the ACEs um, because we actually collect ACE scores on all of our individuals okay. in care. And mm-hmm. our average ACE score at Devereaux is a four. And anything that's a four or higher means that there's a 12 time higher prevalence of health risks, such as substance abuse, depression and suicide attempts. Mm -hmm. But if we look at our youth who are victims of sex trafficking, their average A score is a seven. So almost double our other who have experienced significant forms of trauma. And we know that there, this leads to a 30-fold increase in learning and behavior problems. So, you know, when we see kids coming into our setting who have been victims of other forms of trafficking or trauma and sex trafficking, you know, we have some very damaged youth that we're working with. Yeah. Um, and so the goal in looking at outcomes is really shifting 
the population from being victims to survivors. That is our goal in treatment, right? Because they come in really as victims of their situation, but we know that they can develop the ability to thrive if we can help them become survivors. And we use what's called a state, what's called a stages of change model. And it measures kind of where you are in the stages of change. So most of our youth come in in what we call a pre-contemplation stage where they have no idea that they're a victim of sex trafficking. They think their pimp was their boyfriend. They're in oh. love with them. They want to get back to them. You know, even though they were being traumatized, they still feel that connection. And our I'm sorry, were you stopping me, Ari? No. Okay. Please uh, go right ahead. <laughs> so our goal is to help them progress to an action stage where they actually recognize that they're victims of sex trafficking and they're taking steps to separate from their pimp, from that toxic bond. And that takes about six to nine months. And if we can have these youth in our treatment for a minimum of 12 months, we see them move into a maintenance phase where they are really ready to practice the skills they learned in a residential setting, in their community setting, and to be able to move beyond that victimhood. We also use a universal scale, it's called the Child Behavior Checklist, and it looks at internalizing and externalizing behaviors and we see significant improvements in both categories from admission to discharge in the youth that we work with. And when we look at post-discharge out, post outcomes, one of the best predictors of overall success is whether or not a youth is in school at three months post-discharge. And so we're continuing to revise you know, our data collection. Sometimes it's really hard to locate these youth after discharge. If, if you can imagine, but sure. we've seen really great success with them being able to leave our setting and to go on to complete their education, find gainful employment. Some are able to return to their families, some return to foster care. And actually, you know, in, in Georgia, we provide residential treatment for kids who have been victims of sex trafficking. But in some of our other states like Florida, we've developed specialized foster homes for these youth because we know they need a safe place to discharge to, um, to continue to support their, them in, in their journey. And we have specialized outpatient services for victims um, in other states as well. So uh, we're working on building that continuum in Georgia, but it's really, and it's really important to have those services available in their community so that they can continue to maintain what they've gained in treatment. Absolutely. And, you know, Dr. Graham, one of the um, things that our threads I was picking up on as the youth move through the program and then as you look at the post-treatment plan for them is the power of the word connections. And that's something we talk a lot about at the collaborative as well you know, that connections can help heal trauma. And so when you talked about going back to school, you know, hopefully those youth are um, joining with their peers in some sort of activity or just enjoying the routine of being with other youth and teens. Um, if they're in a group home, 
um, you know, some others who understand what they've gone through and are there to support. And it really, I mean, as human beings, we are meant to be connected and we want those connections to be healthy and positive and affirming for all, right? That is really um, spot on, Irene. One of there's a research study that looked at the importance of connections and showed that if you have one trusted adult in your life, it increases your resiliency and protective factor by fourfold. And so that is important. That is critical because you look at some of these youth who have been through such horrific trauma and. They're, they're kids, right? Yeah. They're, they're adolescents. And you know, with the help of one trusted adult, they can it can really change the course of their lives. So people often ask me, you know, what can we do to help? What can <laughs> you know? And you can be that one trusted youth, that one trusted adult in the youth's life. Like, mm -hmm. and you never know the difference that you make by doing that. And so that can be a teacher. That can be a mentor, that can be someone in the community, it can be a family member, like we all have the ability to make a difference. Oh, I love that. Thank you so much. I mean, the power of one, right? Um, Correct. So as you reflect on your career, Dr. Graham, is there one particular youth whose experience or story has stayed with you? And, oh. and it may be really hard to choose just one. I know, I know, Irene. I was going to say it's hard to narrow down. I, you know what? I'll tell you one that really was the most traumatic to me, and one that's brought me the most joy. How, how okay. About? okay. Okay. So the one that was really that sits in just continues to reside in my spirit because of how traumatic it was was a seven-year-old, which is the youngest oh. child I've ever treated. And mm -hmm. I think that her age made it, you know, even more challenging. And her father had trafficked her across four states, um, beginning as a toddler, you know, um, where it started with images, pictures being sold online and pornography until eventually he started selling her for sexual activity with men um, that was arranged online. And um, and she had never been to school. She had never been on anyone's radar. And so she had no idea how to be a child when mm -hmm. she. And uh, and that was our job to teach her to be a kid, you know, how to socialize, to get her into the educational system to um, begin to start um, normalizing, you know, what it is to be. Just the horror of, you know, not having a chance from birth, you know, mm -hmm. really was traumatic. But, you know, I'm happy to say she had very positive treatment experience, was able to um, go on to live with family. And so I think about her to this day and, you know, send positive vibes and hope that she is thriving and doing well. Yeah. Um, and then we had a 17 year old from another state who was part of an FBI sting. And she was what we call a victim offender, which is how pimps use kids now. So they recruit other kids to work for them to recruit other kids on the street. 
And so these are adolescents who go out to malls or teen clubs or, you know, um, train stations, and they look for other kids who are just hanging around and seem to have nothing to do. And so they've been trained to recruit these other kids into the sex trafficking business. So they promise them something, bring them to the pimp, and then um, their life changes dramatically. And so with this youth, she was 17. She was very smart, very savvy, very charming. And um, we had a lot of problems in treatment because she was trying to recruit other youth. Oh, and that is what she was trained to do. And it yeah. took a few weeks to figure out, oh my God, we have a problem here. Mm-hmm. And so it really forced us to look at treatment and group treatment versus individual treatment. And I think what really stands out for me is we were working with her. Um, she had a successful treatment and we were working on discharge and wanting her to get a job. And at that time, minimum wage was about, you know, $10 an hour or $10.50 an hour. And she was like, why would I get a job making an hour when I can make $300 an hour, you know, and that was really um, Mm eye-opening, and um, it took a lot of work, but when she discharged, she sent us a picture of her in her Burger King uniform back in her city, working full-time, and it just like that, that's why I do this. Yeah, absolutely. possible. Uh, you know, it's all about, you want those youth to be able to live a life of self-determination that they choose, not someone else who's holding something over them or promising them something in exchange, but that they choose what they want to do. You're exactly right. And part of that was helping her to see that your ten fifty an hour is yours. The $300 an hour was not yours. Not, oh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So Dr. Graham, you've um, already mentioned and given some great um, nudges, I'll call it, for how people can be involved in supporting youth, um, serving as a mentor, um, you know, just being present for children um, and youth in community settings. Is there more that folks can do to um, kind of raise their spidey sense, if you will, of the the signs, the warning signs or symptoms, because you mentioned how prevalent this is, while um, Cobb County can be, is really part of the metro area, you know, part of it is suburban, part of it is, has that live, work, play vibe in some of our cities. So we have different types of communities here, and then we're in this much larger Um, metro area of over 5 million, probably over 6 million by now. What can people do to um, just become more aware and help to intervene or stop this tragedy? Yeah, that's a great question um, because we do all play a role. And I think the first thing is educating yourself, you know, um, so that you know sex trafficking of youth exists, right? Because there was a lot of denial when we first started this business, when we first started the treatment and identifying the problem of people thinking, well, that happens someplace else. And now it happens in Cobb County. It happens in Gwinnett County. It happens in Alpharetta. It happens in Fulton County. And so it really, we talk about you know, it being in your own backyard. Once we recognize that, then we can start to um, identify what are the solutions we can put in place to help prevent it. Um, 
part of it is, you know, being aware that there are red red flags and warning signs with youth. If you see a youth that um, is running away from home or who's missing school, has a lot of absences, that should be a red flag um, for sex trafficking. We know that any child feels misunderstood by their parents or is looking for love and acceptance and you think about that, that's probably many of the kids that we know, they, uh -huh. are, they are at risk because they're online and they're looking for something. And those predators are out there looking for them, you know? And so it is not being in a high risk area that you get recruited or abducted. You know, kids are getting recruited online. Yeah. And so training ourselves to, you know, be involved in overseeing your youth use of social media, um, talking to them, um, looking for changes in behavior, but especially looking for things like unexplained shopping trips or large amounts of money, um, youth that have sexually explicit online profiles. You know, those who can be secretive about their information, especially you know, within, um, you know, public sectors where we see kids and they're hesitant to tell you where they live, what their name is, things of that nature. Um, kids who have unexplained bruises or tattoos, um, those who act older than their age. But, you know, if you want to learn more information, the governor's office, the governor's task force has actually done a really wonderful job in Georgia of developing kind of a single point of entry and case management for all youth who are victims of sex trafficking um, is really a model that should be replicated in other states um, because it has the central screening process for all youth in the state. They also have several committees that work with youth on things like empowerment, um, on vocational training, on learning to get back into the workforce, on mental health and wellness. And so on their website, you can find, you know, a host of information. And yeah, I'm really proud. I want to give a shout out to our clinical director at Devro, Georgia, Amy Waldron, who has continued to spearhead um, several of the committees of the governor's task force. But it's a great place to go to learn more about what's happening in Georgia and how you can intervene. Um, also, Shared Hope International um, has a national website um, that really addresses it and has resources for not only what you can do as an individual, but as communities and organizations. Um, Polaris, as I said, um, runs the National Human Trafficking Hotline, and the number is listed there. If you ever suspect someone as a victim of sex trafficking, you should absolutely call the National Human Trafficking Hotline. And so um, I think those are great ways to begin to be involved as individuals in the community who are wanting to help. And of course, if you're wanting to get much more involved, then there are lots of opportunities and the governor's office would be a great place to start. Okay, excellent. That is a lot of opportunities and we'll be sure and include those in the the show notes. Okay. Um, I know uh, Rescuing Hope is based right here in Cobb and Susan Norris is definitely a, an advocate in this um, survivor space. So mm -hmm. we'll also include um, those resources. So, and you're right, the governor and um, the first lady have been very vocal about this topic 
Um, so I'm not at all surprised that the task force is a large uh, resource hub for, um, I'll say, the ordinary residents of our communities and also for um, subject matter experts, law enforcement, all of that. So wonderful. Thank you for sharing all that. Dr. Graham, as our time together draws to a close, is there anything that we didn't talk about? I mean, literally, we could be here three hours and I would <laughs> love to be. I mean, because this is such a multi-layered topic. I mean, you know, every kind of point that you brought up, we could really spend a couple of hours talking about that. But is there just something that comes to your mind that um, you've, is just on your heart that you really want to express? Yes. And, and before I do that, and I will do that, Irene, because you were talking about the governor's office and first lady, I, I, I want to say not only are they vocal about it, but they're putting the money where the issue lies. And so first lady Marty Kim actually just partnered with us at Devro to open a treatment facility. And it's a 24 bed treatment facility. And it's a co-ed facility for kids who are victims of sex trafficking in wow. Gwinnett County. So okay. that is, and you don't see very many co-ed facilities, but like I said, boys are victims of this crime as well. And we have to look at <clears throat> providing services for our boys. So I just wanna make sure I say that. And you know, Gwen Skinner, who's executive director at Devro Georgia has yes. worked with the first lady and it's just been a wonderful collaboration. So uh, just wanted to mention that and thank them thank for their work in this area. And, you know, I think, you know, if I want to say, you know, one thing I'd leave you with is that, you know, there's so many people who feel passionate about this work and so many people who really want to work in making a difference in the lives of children. And, yeah, I encourage you, if you're looking for an opportunity to really work with these youth, you know, consider Devro, Georgia. We have a great facility um, where we can train you to work with these youth on in many levels. We welcome volunteers. We also look for staff members and foster parents who are really passionate about this field. And we're fortunate at Devro that our board of directors has really um, commissioned us to professionalize our workforce. And so we have a program called Ascend where we will pay for educational opportunities if people want to become professionals and licensed professional counselors in this field, therapists to work with this population if they want to become nurses or physicians, whatever your career aspirations are, you know, or if you have student loans, we'll pay for those, wow. you know, because we believe that the the staff that work with this population really need to have the highest level of training and they need to be passionate about what they do. And so we're, we're looking for those staff. So if you out there are listening and looking for a great opportunity, consider Devro, Georgia. And um, if you're looking for other opportunities to get involved, we'll make sure, as you said, Irene, that we list other resources there because our children need our help. The problem is not going away. When I first started this work, the average age of kids that were recruited was 12. Mm. 
12. Think about what grade you're in at 12. You're in middle school. Now mm -hmm. the average age is 15. So we've made some progress. It means that we've done some work in early prevention and, you know, that work has to continue. Um, Absolutely. I mean, there's no longer a need for me to specialize in this area, Irene. I'm very happy to move on and find something else. Something else. You would like to work yourself out of this job. Exactly. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> Oh, well, Dr. Yolanda Graham, such a pleasure to learn from you and talk with you today. And most importantly, thank you for the passion that you bring to this, um, this subject area and the all of the resources that you provide to really our most vulnerable children and the hope that you give them that they're um, that they will be able to live a life of on their terms. <laughs> Thank you, Irene. It's been a pleasure talking with you today. And listeners, we thank you for tuning in today. To be sure that you don't miss any future episodes, please subscribe to our Mind Your Mind podcast. And also please leave us a review on Apple so that others can find us. Please tune in next time as we continue to empower and engage our community through conversations about important issues that we're all dealing with. Until next time, please stay well and remember there is no health without mental health.